What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we are here to get that question answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, send us an email, the address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to uh, put your question in the uh, uh, either YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and we're uh, off to the races. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very good. I didn't let you get your tea uh, washed down there. Sorry about that. That's all right. I've, I've become very skillful <laughs> at manipulating the teacup on air. So. We have an interesting question here from Frank to lead us off today. Catholics praying the rosary confuses me. I thought Jesus said to avoid praying repetitive prayers. Um, actually, no. Jesus, uh, in fact, enjoined praying repetitive prayers. He, he When asked, how do we pray? He taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer, which is a formulaic prayer uh, that is meant to be prayed on a daily basis. That's fairly repetitive. And, of course, the, the witness of Scripture includes uh, many, many instances of very deeply repetitive prayers, particularly in the Psalms. You'll find refrains repeated over and over and over again in the same Psalm. So uh, repetitive prayer is a, is a feature of, of biblical revelation, a feature of Christ's own ministry. What Christ said was, do not be like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Mm. So that has little to do with the actual words that you articulate yeah. and much more to do with your disposition. So if, if, for example, someone took the rosary to mean that by the, by the bare mechanical repetition of the devotion mm -hmm. that I will be able to manipulate the hand of God to do my will or to grant my intention or whatever it might be, uh, well, that would be that would fall under Christ's prescription right there. But if I approach the rosary properly, which is to say I'm here to meditate upon the mysteries of Christ's life and the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, in the hopes that reflecting on these things will, will draw me closer to the heart of Jesus, that'd be the proper spirit, and there's nothing wrong with repetition. But any, any Catholic spiritual writer, all the great doctors of the Church, would tell you, whether it's the rosary or some other private devotion, if you're in the midst of your prayers— and you find yourself drawn up into the wordless love of God, you put the thing aside because it's, it's done its job. And sure. it's, it's better to give yourself over to that kind of contemplation than to superstitiously say, oh, I, I can't stop on the, on the ninth Hail Perry. <laughs> i got to go all the way to the end. No, that's, that's, that's not the right idea. The idea okay. is this is a tool. It's an instrument. It's meant ultimately to draw me affectively, emotionally, mentally into the contemplation and love of God. Frank, we hope that clears it up. Thanks so much for your question. Here's an email, a very timely email from Ryan, who says, A priest friend once mentioned that artificial intelligence, AI, is not and will never be true intelligence. Do you have any insight on where he's coming from? 
Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. And and look, I'm I'm not an expert on, on AI. Uh, I, I know very little about it, in fact, except what you know I read in the headlines, like the rest of us. So I can't speak with any kind of authority. Um, but so the, right now, there are things that computers can do. There are things that artificial intelligence can do. Um, one thing that that a computer doesn't seem capable of doing is the computer doesn't have biological needs. Uh, the, the, the computer doesn't have a point of view. The computer lacks consciousness and subjectivity. And all of those things play into what human consciousness consists in, right? So, right. so the, the very fact of consciousness, why are we conscious? Why are we aware as, as beings? Um, that's a puzzle to scientists when they try to, well, you know, couldn't, couldn't you make an automaton that could, that could do the things that humans do with it, biological organisms do without consciousness? And one theory, and this is just a theory, uh, about why consciousness is useful is that it, it, it's kind of like the, um, uh, you know, the mouse on your computer desktop that yeah. enables you to, you know, to examine different pieces of data and then select the one that is most relevant to your present concerns. And those, are, those concerns are going to change depending on your context, socially, biologically, geographically, and so on. And that kind of embedded, embodied highly context-dependent consciousness um, that, can, that determines on an ongoing and dynamic basis what counts as relevant. Uh, there's nothing like that that could be analogous in the world of, uh, of, uh, of, of computer intelligence. Now, computers can solve problems. Um, uh, human intelligence, general intelligence, the ability to solve not just one genre of, of problem, but a variety of problems in all kinds of different contexts. That's that's what computers seem to lack. I mean, you can make a computer that can beat humans at chess, um, but ask that same computer to go get a spoon out of the drawer. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, Ryan, thanks so much uh, for your email. And a quick one here from Carol. Why do Catholics cross themselves? Yeah, God speaks sign language. <laughs> right. Love that. Yeah. Love it. So... So the, the sign of the cross is an invocation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, of course, it is an embodied invocation, and, and, and it's, it's useful uh, it's because it's embodied prayer. It, it, it touches us in our, in our embodiment and our affectivity in a way that mere words don't. Um, sometimes you don't have a word. You don't, you, maybe you, you, you're, you're, you're at a loss for words, kind of like I am right now, stumbling over myself. You know? <laughs> but you want to invoke God, and, and that that automatic reaction. I do it all the time, actually. Even if I, I have a thought, I have this desire to connect to God, to, to invoke his help, and words just don't seem appropriate. I'll just make the sign of the cross. It's a very ancient tradition in the Catholic Church. We can date it with certainty back to the second century, but our second century sources tell us that they themselves learned it from the apostles. Wow. Going way back for that one. Uh, Carol, thanks so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, especially for those of you watching on television today, here's our address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We're going to go to the phones in just a moment. We'll be talking with Andre in Trinidad, watching us on YouTube today. Also, Aubrey in Detroit. A couple of lines are open for you right now at 833 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
It's called Communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Andrews. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Andre in Trinidad watching us today on YouTube. Hello, Andre. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Tom and Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Dr. Anders, you can appreciate that sometimes it's confusing to a novice when one hears competing or what one perceives to be incomplete arguments from a variety of apologists, especially when one assumes that all are on the same page of church teaching. Last week, someone called for your opinion on evidence for purgatory in Luke 12, 40 to 48. While I fully accept your arguments for the logical inferences for purgatory in the Bible, I must confess I found this argument in Luke of a possible third realm in the afterlife from Jesus himself as highly plausible. But now I have to review that understanding in light of your recent response, and I'd be grateful if you could further explain your objection to using this passage in Luke, as I would often defer to your wisdom and expertise on such matters, just to have more clarity. Um, Yeah, sure. Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So first of all, on the matter of apologists who who disagree with one another, (laughs) right? Well, this has been going on for a very long time. Oh, yes. Okay, and and in fact, interestingly, in uh, in the early 1520s, Ulrich Zwingli, who was a Protestant reformer, published a book entitled On the Clarity and Certainty of the Word of God. And one of the things that Zwingli, again, a Protestant, mm-hmm. one of the things that Zwingli argued was, <clears throat> we need the doctrine of the Bible alone. We need sola scriptura. Because if you look at the Catholics, they can't agree on anything. If you look at scholastic theology in the universities, they have all these different points of view, and they need something really simple that can clarify the Christian message, and they can all agree on it. And if we just stick to the Bible alone, there'll be perfect uniformity in the faith. Well, that didn't turn out very well for Zwingli, (laughs) because shortly thereafter, people showed up in his own church and had different interpretations of the Bible than Zwingli did. Mm. Well, he was going to solve that problem by drowning them. So Ouch. he would he would uh, he had a, a a group that worked for him that would go out and capture Anabaptists. Those were people that believed in believers' baptism as opposed to infant baptism. And he'd say, "You're not going to baptize your child. Fine, we'll baptize you." And they would dunk them and kill them. Wow. Know? So he uh, he had a different way of handling disagreements. Yeah. When he found that the Bible alone didn't work. But anyway, the charge that Catholics were all over the place doctrinally and they couldn't agree uh, was true. If you've ever read Scholastic theology, you know that Thomas will say. Well, you know, here's some speculative theological question, and I take this point of view, but this other guy takes this other point of view, and here's why I'm right, and here's why he's wrong. So that, that's all right. That, that's part of the, the dialectical process of reason, point-counterpoint, thesis-antithesis, is, is how we advance in knowledge. In fact, Thomas said that uh, dialectic as a form of reasoning was different from demonstration. Demonstration reasons from first principles, like geometry. You know, there's only one right answer in a geometric proof. Uh, dialectic reasons towards first principles. It's mm. it's inherently exploratory, right? So there's this room for multiple points of view, and the Church rarely intervenes in theological disputes unless some position uh, advances something that is ruled by the hierarchy to be heretical, and then, mm. then you jump in, right? So that's all right. That's all right. Now, I've had—I'm uh, not going to name names, but I remember I, I made a statement on the air one time at a, another— Catholic radio host called me and said, Anders, I don't think you're right about that. I was like, well, I don't think you're right about that. We had a lovely conversation on off, off air, you know. Um, uh, now, in terms of the passage in Luke chapter 12, um, I'm trying to remember, I think this is the one in verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, 
but the one who doesn't know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten few blows. I can't remember if that's the one that we mentioned or not. Um, but um, uh, in any event, the idea that, uh, you know, there are consequences for sin and that Christ will meet them out, somebody could be admitted to the kingdom of heaven and still, you know, suffer some sort of temporal punishment, um, is, of course, consistent, fully consistent with the doctrine of purgatory, and I would, I would not be afraid to advance those kinds of arguments in support of a general principle of, of, of penance and satisfaction and temporal punishment due to sin. Um, you know, I think within the context of Christ's specific teaching, Jesus's message overall throughout all the synoptics is anticipating the arrival of the coming kingdom of God. Right, and and so he he has an eschatological vision, a vision about the end of time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think it's you know you can you can read purgatory into that without finding that this is his explicit topic of conversation. Okay, appreciate that, Andre. Thanks for checking in from Trinidad. Great to hear from you today. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Aubrey in Detroit, watching us on EWTN television today. Aubrey, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, good afternoon to you and to uh, Dr. Anders. I'm, I'm, I called you guys about two weeks ago. I don't know if you remember about me joining the Catholic Church. Yeah, sure, and I remember. I thought, and I thought, right, right, and I thought you had to be white to, to, to join the Catholic Church, but now I'm finding out that's not true, you know. And Great. now we have a section, we have a section in Detroit called Hamtramck, where all the Catholic people go, black and white. It's a donut shop. So I was talking to someone, and they was like, did you hear about what Pope Francis is doing now with, uh, with, uh, with the gay men and lesbian women? I'm like, no, I didn't. He was like, they, uh, he's, he, he's thinking about letting them join the church or come to church or something like that. And then I hear that there's some cardinals and some bishops and some bishops that's totally against that. And now I'm kind of confused because I was raised in a household where, you know, homosexuality was wrong. And I'm like, now they come into the Catholic church and they can, I'm understanding that they can't get married there, but they can join and they can come. And I was wondering, can you, you know, can you talk sure, about it? Sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. So, so first, let me, let me, ba- I'm going to answer your question about homosexuality, but I'm going to back up to 50,000 feet and talk a little bit about how the Catholic Church is structured, uh, because it's structured very differently, probably, from the Protestant churches that you've belonged to. And if you bring your Protestant understanding of, of, of church to interpreting Catholicism, you're going to make some, you're going to have some misunderstanding, okay? So here's how the Church functions. Christ did not just leave us with a book. He didn't just leave us with the Bible. He gave, he gave a teaching authority to the apostles and to their successors, the bishop, bishops. And, uh, and he also handed on a deposit of faith, like the content of Christian religion, that's not just contained in the Bible. It's also contained in an oral tradition that's been handed on for 2,000 years. And, and so uh, that's, that's where we go to find the stuff of Catholic life. You go to that tradition that's been handed on by Christ and then faithfully preserved by the successors of the apostles for 2,000 years. Now, when it comes to the question of human sexuality, that deposit of faith is extremely clear that that the the only allowable sexual activity is between married men and women 
right? Married to one another, right? Married, yes, Men and yes. women married, man to woman, woman to man, okay. for the sake of raising a family. And that is, that is the unambiguous and infallible teaching of the Catholic Church and has been for 2,000 years, okay? Um, now, when it comes to, all right, so how do we live the moral truth of the Catholic faith in the world— uh, what kind of pastoral policies are we going to have to bring about these moral realities? Uh, bishops and popes have, uh, have authority within the Church, and at one level they have the authority of, say, policy, right, which is not a doctrinal issue. It's literally like, okay, if you're in your parish and, uh, and the men's Bible study wants the parish hall on Monday and the women's Bible study wants the parish hall on Monday— well, the buck stops with the pastor, and he says, the men are getting it on Monday, and the women are getting it on Tuesday. I have spoken, right? That's just—he <laughs> uh, he decides, and that's his decision, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but at every level, ultimately, there's a hierarchical government, and someone in the church makes a decision about what the proper pastoral approach is to a particular issue. Uh, the teaching of the church doesn't change. But the policies might change from parish to parish. So one parish says men get it on Monday and women get it on Tuesday. The parish down the street might have a different schedule. Okay. Now, um, it can get a little bit uh, thornier when, uh, you know, let's say, for example, uh, when I was in the Protestant church, I might go to a Protestant church, uh, a, a congregation where virtually everybody in the church belongs to the same political party. And, and they feel really, really strongly about the moral stance of their political party, mm -hmm. so much so that they say, well, I just can't even imagine how anybody could claim to be a Christian and belong to that other political party. <laughs> you pick your party, right? Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure you've seen that, too. Sure. You know? and, uh, and, and I've, I've, had, I've had Republican Catholics say to me, I can't imagine how anybody could be a Catholic and a Democrat. And I've had Democrat Catholics tell me, I can't see how anybody could be a Catholic and a Republican. Now, within the Protestant world, those groups are probably going to pair off into different denominations, hmm. right, and uh, in different congregations. Okay. But the Catholic Church says, nope, we're all we're all part of one group, right? You could be a Democrat, you could be a Republican, be a liberal, be a conservative. We're all part of the same group. Now we have the same deposit of faith, but we all, you know, we all are this one church, right? And and. Uh, Sometimes when uh, uh, bishops also are people with political opinions and ideological uh, uh, priorities, and and so you can get a bishop who will say, well, uh, you know, I just, obviously the moral thing to do here is X, and what he's really reflecting is an ideological opinion. Mm. He, he may not be drawing directly on the deposit of faith. He's, he's giving his private interpretation of how that deposit of faith should be applied in this concrete historical circumstance. Mm -hmm. And over the history of the Church, there have been lots of occasions where Catholics have disagreed with one another mightily. You know, particularly you think about the Middle Ages, and you have two Catholic countries that both go to war, right? Well, you're going to have bishops lining up in either side of those countries, and one side is going to say, my country's in the right, and the other bishops is going to say, no, my country's in the right. That, that's always been part of Catholic life, and it's perfectly consistent with the idea that there is an infallible deposit of faith that never changes. Now, the, the, what, what you're hearing about in the present over the issue of homosexuality is this. It's not the question of whether the Church teaching has changed. And the Pope is emphatic. The Church's teaching on human sexuality has not changed. It is a question about what is the best pastoral approach to take with people who are currently not living in accord with the Church's teaching. All right, so if homosexuality is wrong, 
what do you do pastorally with someone who, who won't obey the church's teaching? And there is, a, there is a position in the church that said they should just categorically be excluded from all pastoral ministry, and we should be, you know, set aside, and, and uh, you know, we better have a really hard, strong stance, not allowable, not allowable, don't come here, right? There is a camp in the church that says, um, okay, it's wrong, but mere exclusion is not doing anything to advance these people closer to a Catholic form of life. Mm. So is there some... You know, how can I be pastorally present to someone who is a sinner in a compassionate way that will help them to stop being to to stop being a sinner, right? Okay. And and that's how I interpret the lion's share of the debate. Now, there are people in the Catholic Church who just categorically don't believe the faith, and they represent themselves as Catholic, and they say, "Well, I think you know the Church is wrong on this issue, and I'd like the Church to change." Um, that's not consistent with Catholic. That, that, that's not allowable. The Catholic Church does not contemplate the possibility that a fundamental moral truth can change. All right? Now, you will meet Catholics who will claim otherwise, um, but that's not the historic position. Okay, and uh, Aubrey, we'll hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much for your call today from Detroit. It is called a communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. We have a couple of phone lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-3986. Let's go to Gino in Canton, Ohio, watching on EWTN television today. Hey, Gino, what's on your mind today, sir? Well... I get a lot of learning from watching the doctor with his high degree of spirituality and he's close to God. And I believe what he says because he makes sense expressing complicated things. I have a question. I'd like the doctor to evaluate for me. And if you can help me out. Okay. Two people, two people get married. They both go to, they're both Catholic. They go to confession before they get, before the honeymoon. And, they get married, and they're both in grace, and they're both Catholic. And after a while, they have a child, a year or so later. And that child is born with, with original sin. I don't understand how two people with that original sin removed from them, how father and mother begin with, and we're in the state of grace. I can help you. I can help you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So, um, grace is not transmitted by physical generation, but sacramentally. That's why Christ says you must be born again. Again. Right? It's not it's not physical generation that brings you into contact with the saving grace of God. It's rebirth through water and the Holy Spirit and holy baptism. Um, when we talk about original sin, we mean really two things. One is we're talking about the fact that the, the soul comes into the world without the gift of sanctifying grace. Right, so it's a it's a privation. It's the lack of something. There should have been sanctifying grace, or you would want there to be sanctifying grace. You don't have that grace in the soul. But grace again is not something. It's not part of nature. It's not something that can be transmitted by by the DNA and the chromosomes. Right, it can only come by the gracious initiative of God Himself. And so the parents, whether they may personally be in the state of grace, but they don't have the power to transmit that through physical generation. Now, there's also something that we call the wounds of original sin which is a wound in our nature uh, that makes us prone to sin. And it, it manifests itself in things like our concupiscence, that's our immoderate desire for bodily pleasure, um, our, our moral weakness, it's kind of you know hard to get up off the couch and make yourself do things, um, 
our our egotism, our, our our natural sort of inbred condition to regard our own needs first. I mean, you look at the family photo. Whose picture do you look for first? Mm, you know, yeah. um, uh, in our ignorance, and the wounds of original sin are not healed by sanctifying grace. Not immediately, right? They they can be healed habitual habitually through a life of, of faithfulness to God, but never totally eliminated. And that is transmitted through physical generation. Gino, thanks so much for your great call. We have a couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Stay with us. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you call right now, hopefully we can get you on today's program. Here's an email from Dante. Has anyone reconciled the narrative in Genesis about the time it took the Lord God to create the whole world and the universe? It says six days, and he rested on the seventh day. Carbon dating, however, puts the age of the earth in billions of years. How in human terms is God's time compared to human time? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, of course, people have answered, have offered all kinds of reconciliations of the Genesis account with natural science. Um, and the, the suggestion, which seems to be implied in your question, that, th- that there needs to be some sort of proportionate um, correlation such that, you know, maybe a day of God's time equals, you know, so many millions of years of geological time or something like that. That is something that people have suggested. I don't think it's the most fruitful way to approach this question. I think the right way to approach the question is uh, to say, what is the function of the biblical narrative, right, for the people, in the lives of the people for whom it was written? Uh-huh. And of course, G- Genesis, uh, like all of the books of Moses, was was written to guide the people of Israel in their own religious observances and practices, and this is clearly a uh, a justification, a ground for the Sabbath commandment among the Jewish people, right? So I don't think the purpose of the book of Genesis was necessarily to give detailed scientific information about the age of the earth or the, uh, the you know the the physical process of creation as much as it was uh, uh, an attempt to instruct the religious lives of, uh, of the Hebrew people, right? And, and that's the way the Church has always read the text, at least in order to see in the book of Genesis a kind of type and figure and allegory of moral realities, uh, as well as foreshadowing uh, uh, the coming of Christ and things of that sort. So it's just, it, it's not a scientific book. It's not a book about geology or, 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 or ancient uh, human anthropology or anything of the sort, and it's, it's, it's a misreading of the text to treat the text as if it were a different genre than the one that it is. And uh, Dante, thank you so much uh, for your email. Hope that's helpful for you. Here's one now from Lisa. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Tell me, what does this prayer suggest? Why does this suggest that Jesus is dead? Also, what does until he come mean? Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, appreciate the question. So the text is not saying that Christ is presently dead, right? It's the memorial of the death that transpired on Calvary. Mm. When Christ died on, on Good Friday for the sins of the world, that's the death that's being memorialized. Now, of course, he's risen, that's why he's coming. Yeah. 
So the second half of the expectation, you do this ritual until he comes again, presupposes that he's coming again. He's coming again in glory on the clouds mm-hmm. of heaven, very much alive. Sure. All right, very good. And uh, Lisa, thanks so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, or perhaps you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. Here's one now from uh, TJ. I have a question and a comment regarding purgatory. Doesn't Matthew 13 verses 36 through 40, refute the doctrine of purgatory. Jesus describes here how at his coming, the righteous are separated out from the unrighteous, and then they, quote, shine like the sun in the kingdom. No time for purgatory and no mention of others in between the righteous and the unrighteous that go there. Also, Dr. Andrews' illustration of the reparation aspect of purgatory, for example, helping to pay for a car he damaged out there in the parking lot, is an example of a voluntary act and would count as a true reparation. A forced reparation, on the other hand, is essentially a punishment which indicates that saved Christians in purgatory are being punished in conflict with Scripture that says those in Christ have no condemnation. Your comments, please. Thanks, TJ. Um, Yeah, first of all, with respect to Matthew chapter 13 and the promise of uh, Christ's victorious coming and the resurrection from the dead, leaving no time available for purgatory, I don't know how you can possibly derive that interpretation, given that nothing in the Catholic faith suggests that purgatory lasts for any determinate length of time. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in fact, there is a there is a view of purgatory. It's not universally held among Catholics, but that the vision of God itself has a purifying aspect to it, such that you know you encounter the vision of God, you see God for who He is. And you respond rather like Isaiah did in chapter 6 of, of his text when he sees God and he basically says, gulp, I'm toast, <laughs> you know. And I've used this analogy before on the air. When I was a teenager, I was kind of a wild and crazy guy and did things that wild and crazy teenagers do and felt, you know, like maybe I wasn't the most upstanding guy in the world. And I would sometimes get around my very righteous grandfather, who was nothing but loving to me. He never had a word of criticism. Mm-hmm. And in fact, all he ever did was affirm me and say nice things to me. But something about being around the the nice, affirming, but highly righteous and man of great integrity grandfather was a kind of rebuke to my own way of life. Just being in his presence of loving, goodwill, and charity Mm. stung because it, it, it focused my own mind on my own unworthiness of that kind of affirmation. And, uh, and why can't the vision of God be like that such that, you know, the sinner who's confronted with the face of God has a, a, a purifying experience that is that is psychologically, if not physically, painful. Uh, and there's no reason that can't be nigh unto instantaneous and still fulfill what the Church means by purgatory. The Church doesn't say that purgatory invo- involves, you know, pitchforks and, and smoking cauldrons with, you know, demons poking you in the eye or anything like that for thousands of years. It just says there is a purgatory, yeah. that it that it involves... Uh, purification and penance, right? Satisfaction, and it could be instantaneous, and it will be emptied when Christ comes back, right? Well, there's not going to be any purgatory after the glorious return of the Lord and the resurrection. We all enter into the presence mm. of God, so that's that's all you need. Um, now, the other question was, uh, yes, is uh, is forced reparation not reparation? I don't know why it wouldn't be. I mean, like the, the court can certainly, in, in human terms, uh, let's say I back into Tom's car. And, uh, and I do some damage, 
And I say, I'm sorry. And he says, I forgive you. And I say, I'm out of here. <laughs> and Tom says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Anderson, don't you need to pay me back? And I'm like, oh, no, you've forgiven me. There's no condemnation in Christ, Tom. I'm gone. See you later. And Tom, you know, has to go to court, and the court can come to me and say, Anders, we're going we're gonna to force you to make reparation. That's reparation, just because it's forced. Sure. You know? How do you know it's forced? That's another question. How do you know it's forced? How do you know it involuntary? So uh, there's a famous saint, Catholic saint, John Henry Newman, uh, a cardinal, uh, now St. John Henry Newman, Yes, wrote a very famous poem called The Dream of Gerontius about a soul in purgatory. Uh, and in, in Newman's poem, it's absolutely voluntary. The soul arrives in heaven, sees the vision of God, says, I'm not ready for this. Uh, you know, basically does a gainer off the diving board, lands in purgatory, gets himself cleaned up, and then comes back, right? Of course it's voluntary. It's voluntary in the sense that we will for it to happen, mm. right? No soul in purgatory wills to be anywhere other than purgatory. Okay. Appreciate that. TJ, thank you so much uh, for your email. Let's go back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Louise, a first-time caller from Bellevue, Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Louise, what's on your mind today? Uh, Dr. Andrews, I have a question for you. Uh, I have, uh, you know, on the story of the cleansing of the temple where uh, the Lord has righteous anger, yeah. Uh, when he flipped over the tables, okay. Uh, on that, um, when he made that cord, uh, did he physically strike any other people? Um, yeah. Was- Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I, 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 I don't see any reason to doubt that he did. I mean, I'm not sure the text explicitly describes an act of violence by Christ. I mean, there's no, we don't have a, you know, it's like an Edgar Rice Burroughs adventure novel where, you know, and Jesus took out his vorpal blade and went snicker-snack and <laughs> disemboweled people. You don't get that level of granular detail. Yeah. Uh, but he did make a whip of cords, and he did knock over tables, and I mean, the implication seems to be that he was giving people what for and, you know, knocking heads and taking names. It does seem to be that way in the text, and I, I don't see any reason to deny that that would be the case. Um, uh, you know, Christ had confronted an act of of, uh, of gross injustice, and he they obviously were immune to his uh, his appeals to vacate and, mm-hmm. and do the right thing. And so he had to take matters into his own hands. I mean, that there are there are times in human life when um, when violence is allowable. I mean, if somebody breaks into your house and threatens you, and you, you are allowed to use force to repel the invader. The mm-hmm. Same thing in in just war and same, some things like that. Um, uh, Louis de Montfort, who is a pretty famous Catholic saint and great uh, devotee of Our Lady, many people are very attracted to de Montfort's spirituality and his uh, his preparation for consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary. De Montfort was a big man; he was large, and uh, he liked to go into saloons uh, in uh, 18th century France and and exhort the ruffians to come to mass. And sometimes they would jeer at him. And um, this was a different era in those days. And De Montfort would sometimes go knock their heads together and drag them into mass. <laughs> wow! <laughs> you know, and then they would usually they would they would perk up and listen and sir yes sir and reform their lives. Off you go, uh, Luis. Thanks so much uh, for your call. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Hey, be sure to join us for a wonderful program that we air for you on the radio side of EWTN, and that's called More to Life. Monday through Friday mornings, 10 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Dr. Greg Popchak and Lisa Popchak, his wife, help listeners navigate the waters of family life with solutions straight from the genius of Pope John Paul II's theology. 
Physiology of the Body. It's a wonderful program. EWTN Radio, delighted to bring it to you each and every weekday at 10 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now for Terry in Grand Rapids, Michigan, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Terry, what's on your mind today? Um, hi, I have a question about cremains. Uh, my son was friends or is friends with an older couple. Uh, he met them in college. They were probably maybe 30 years older than him. The husband died a couple of years ago. Uh, my son was invited to the funeral. He didn't go. It was COVID time. Um, it was 500 miles away. So, um, you know, he sent his regrets. And after the funeral, he received, <laughs> he told me that the wife sent him some of the cremains of the husband. Um, I believe that both the husband and wife were Catholics at some point, uh, but they were quite active in Native American ceremonies up north. So he said he watched the video and it looked as though, you know, it was a very Native American kind of ceremony scattering it to the four winds. But apparently some of it was put in a little urn and sent to him. It's currently in his closet. He says he doesn't want to be disrespectful, but what is he to do with it? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, of course, the church law is that Catholics, Catholics can't have their bodies disposed of in that way. The church doesn't say anything about non-Catholics, right? So non-Catholics can do whatever they want with their bodies. I mean, they're probably more and less respectful things that they can do, but there's no law of the church that would govern them, so okay. we, we don't bother with non-Catholics. Mm. But if you're a Catholic... You either have to be buried, or if you're cremated, your remains have to be kept intact in a single urn and placed in a in a consecrated space like the columbarium at your church or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Um, uh, I, I'm not aware that there's any provision in Catholic canon law that, that prescribes exactly what is to be done in this case, because obviously they've already been separated. Um, you know, the wife has scattered some and kept some and divided some. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, and, you know, he wasn't the executor of the, the estate, so it's not on him. He's not directly implicated in this. Um, and, you know, ideally, I would like to see the remains, you know, reuni- reunited with the, with the ashes in the urn and then placed in a respectful place. He might not be able to accomplish that. Um, and it's a big ask to ask him to, you know, shell out money for a columbarium spot for, you know, a thimble full of somebody else's ashes who who obviously wasn't concerned about church teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't, like, I'll have to think about what the right thing to do. I mean, one thing to do is he could go talk to the priest and say, you know, is there a convenient way for me to dispose of this within, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a an unused columbarium plot, or, you know, maybe I could make provision to have this buried with my ashes if I'm going to be cremated, sure. or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some provision that can look forward to a restful, I mean, a, a respectful repose of the sure. material. Um, but I don't want to put too much of a burden on him either, because, like, he didn't ask for this to come to him. Right. And, uh, Terry, thanks so much for your call. We hope that is uh, helpful for you. Here is a thank you letter from Tony in Cincinnati. She says, I just completed my first ever prayer hour in front of an abortion clinic. A young man approached to ask us questions, everything from, is it a sin to use contraception, to, is it okay that I'm spiritual but not religious? Thanks to your show, I was able to calmly and rationally respond to his questions while expressing a sincere interest in his well-being. So, Dr. Anders, thank you for helping listeners form their consciences, demeanors, and intellects 
to radiate Christ. Thanks again, Tony in Cincinnati. I really appreciate that. Thank you so Isn't much. That nice. Yeah, I, I love it when I get stories of people who are listeners to EWTN who then take what they learn and share it with others. Yes. That's really encouraging. Putting it into action. Here's an email now from Tim who says, Hi, Dr. Anders. How does the Catholic Church view Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9? Um, yeah, so Ephesians says that we're saved by, by grace uh, through faith and not from works. This is, you know, from God rather than men and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would, we would read that the way we would read the larger Pauline teaching on the relationship of grace and faith and, and works of the law. And it is, I mean, Paul's pretty explicit about it in the book of Romans where he goes into the most detail. And what St. Paul teaches is that the Mosaic Law, um, the mere prescriptions of the Mosaic Law can't make a person righteous. And, I mean, that makes perfect sense if you think about it. I mean, not, not that the Code of Alabama is like the pinnacle of all righteousness, right? <laughs> but, uh, but even if it were, you know, the fact that the Alabama legislature promulgates a legislative code um, is no guarantee that the people who are subject to that code will necessarily follow it. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. and, and by and large, they don't, right? Well, lots of them don't. Sure. Same thing goes with, um, with, uh, with, with God promulgating the law. Just because God publishes the Mosaic Code, um, that doesn't necessarily change hearts. It doesn't change character necessarily, uh, such that a vicious person becomes a virtuous person just in virtue of acknowledging the law. So the law itself doesn't save anyone. And if you were inherently virtuous, you wouldn't need the law. I mean, the law is for sinners, right? It's to constrain your activity. If your activity is inherently gracious and virtuous, then you don't really need the law. And that's, in fact, what Christ came to accomplish. Uh, uh, Christ, the new law given by Christ is not something written on tablets of stone. Um, it is something that's written into human hearts. And Paul tells us in Romans 13 that loving God and neighbor fulfills all the law. He also tells us in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God is poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. So the Christian, the one who has come into relationship with Christ, receives the gift of the Spirit, uh, the love of God in his heart, enabling him to love God and love neighbor, and it's by that that he's saved, right? That's the way that grace saves us. It changes our character from the inside out, such that a written code becomes unnecessary in 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 the grand scheme of things. Uh, because the life of the virtues and the life of love becomes infused within us as our very as our very nature, right? By grace, it is by grace, it mm-hmm. comes through faith, uh, but it's a change of our in, in, innermost character. And so that's the way uh, that the Catholic Church understands Paul and understand Ephesians too as well. Tim, thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called to communion here on EWTN. Back to the phones now for Bill, a first-time caller in Scranton, Pennsylvania, listening on the great JMJ Radio. Hey there, Bill, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, uh, I'm just wondering, in a previous conversation, uh, uh, the moderator, and I'm sorry to not know who's, who's talking, uh, referred to Jesus and Christ as kind of identical. And I, I always thought that Jesus was the man-god, and after crucified, he becomes Christ. He is Christ. Okay, yeah, uh, thanks. I appreciate the, the question. So here's, here's the distinction. Uh, the word Christ, as I'm sure you know, is a translation of the Hebrew word that means simply anointed one. And anointing in Hebrew culture was a, was a rite that would uh, be performed to acknowledge someone's uh, taking up a particular office. So kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed. And so you could speak about a person being anointed 
which means uh, not that they have some sort of charismatic gifting, mm. but that they occupy a particular role or an office in, in, in the society. Um, and so uh, the prophecies about the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, are prophecies about a future prophet, priest, or king, or in this case, prophet, priest, and king, who will arrive on the scene and, uh, and liberate the people of God from her enemies. That's what the Messiah's job description is. And so, uh, the, the, as it turns out, the person who is the Messiah is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus is his given name. Right? His parents named him Jesus. He has the office of being the Christ. He did not start being the Christ after his resurrection. He was, in fact, the Christ from the time he was born. He was the one that would, uh, that would liberate Israel from her, from her bondage. Um, now, in a special way, uh, at the baptism, after, after Jesus is baptized by John and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and we hear the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. This was, uh, as it were, in a public way, his investiture for the office of Messiah. He, his character, his, his identity as the Messiah was established from eternity past, and that's why this is what Luke can say to Mary in uh, Luke chapter 1. He says, you're going to give birth to a child. He's going to be the one that liberates Israel. So that's his identity from the beginning. But his, the public acknowledgement of that, the anointing ceremony, as it were, uh-huh. uh, was at the baptism. And that didn't, it didn't, wait until after his resurrection. Okay. And Bill, thank you so much uh, for your question. Hope that's helpful for you. Here's an anonymous email that we have received. Hello, Dr. Anders. Thanks for your ministry. My family loves your show and learns so much. So my husband and I were at our adoration chapel last night. A group of parishioners were there praying the rosary out loud in a group. Well, this is the first time in two years that the Adoration Chapel has not been completely silent while we have been there. So, my question is, is the expectation that the Adoration Chapel always be silent? Please withhold my name. Don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Thanks, Anonymous. Yeah, thank you. No, that's not the expectation. It really is up to the pastor of the parish what policies he wants to implement around the Adoration Chapel. Mm. And I know in um, uh, in my hometown of Birmingham, mm-hmm. a prominent parish that is uh, has had an Adoration Chapel for some you know twenty plus years, um, it's often silent. But at the at the turn of the hour, there is a ritual of of reciting the Divine Mercy Chaplet every hour on yeah. the hour. And yeah. So you know, if you want silence, um, you know you you'd better come in at like. 307 and, and be done by, you know, by 355 or yeah, something, you know, yeah. uh, because you're going to hit that 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 uh, Divine Mercy Chaplet on the hour every hour. Thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Here's one now from Joe in Wisconsin. Dr. Anders, I've noticed several articles written announcing that Pope Francis changed a portion of the Our Father that says, lead us not into temptation, and that he's changed it to, do not let us fall into temptation. The changes to the prayer was the attempt to remove the implication that God leads us to fall into temptation. Now, that was in 2019, but the prayer has not been modified when said in Mass at our church. So... Is there a change? If so, should I acknowledge the change when I pray the Our Father? And what are your thoughts on this change? Thanks, Joe in Wisconsin. Yes, thank you. So, first of all, the whole premise of the question is false. The Pope did not change the Our Father. That's number one. Okay. Um, there, there were some European bishops' conferences 
I believe Italy and France, but I'm not 100% sure about that, but I'm pretty sure Italy and France, that petitioned the Holy Father, petitioned Rome uh, for the right to change their translations of the Lord's Prayer that they use in their own vernacular, whether Italian or French. And the Holy See did grant them permission, all right, to do that. Um, the 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 uh, the English-speaking countries of the world have not asked for that. Okay. All right, and so we haven't changed anything. And of course, uh, you know, the Latin typical edition of the Roman Missal, uh, which is the standard for all Latin ma- all masses in the Latin Rite in the mm-hmm. Western world, uh, has not changed the the language of the Lord's Prayer. Now, in terms of my opinion, all right, I um. I profoundly respect the Holy Father, and I respect the bishops' conferences of the world. Um, I personally think it is a mistake, all right? I think it's a theological mistake. The reason I think it's a theological mistake is, first of all, on exegetical grounds, if you actually look at the text of the prayer, the word for to lead, all right, uh, it's the same word that we find when the, when the uh, companions of the paralytic bring him and lay him at the feet of Christ, hmm. right? It is a very active voice kind of verb here. It really means, you know, physically move somebody into another location, okay. right? Okay, all right. So what is being asked is that God himself not lead us into temptation, right? That, that's, that's what it says. You dig into exegetically into the Greek, and that's exactly what's being said there. And the history of Catholic interpretation of this verse presupposes the fact that God could, in fact, lead someone into temptation. God doesn't tit direct. God doesn't tempt anyone directly, but He could lead them into the path of temptation. In fact, Thomas Aquinas gives, I think, three reasons why God might do that. One would be uh, as a punishment for sin. Right. Another would be uh, uh, as an opportunity to strengthen you in the pursuit of virtue. Because if you don't stretch a muscle, you're never going to grow it. That's true. Right? And the third one would be as an opportunity to merit. And so there are, there are very positive reasons why God might, in fact, choose to lead someone into temptation without directly tempting them himself. So with all due respect to the bishops' conferences of France and Italy, I, I, I think that the rest of the world is on the right page, and I'm glad we haven't changed it. All right. Joe in Wisconsin, thanks for your email. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We'll see you next time on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.